Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. And we're live. Welcome to Earful of Dirt Lineouts. I'm here with GM and CEO Kimball Care of the Utah Warriors. And uh, it seems that he's got a nice mountain, beautiful day in Utah. <laughs> it is a beautiful day. It's supposed to be nice uh, 75, 80 degrees today, which uh, this time of year is always a welcome uh, surprise given the weather that we have here in the spring. We had snow less than a week and a half ago, and it's supposed to be 78 degrees today, so it'll be nice. So to give everyone the background, when did you begin playing rugby? Oh, you know, it wasn't until I got to BYU my freshman year. I was going down to BYU to wrestle. Um, and decided the last minute that uh, wrestling wasn't going to be for me at the collegiate level. Um, and uh, my roommate actually said, you know, you should go try out for the rugby team. And I'd had a bunch of friends in high school that had played at Highland and uh, one of the other clubs up there in Davis County and, and here in Utah. Um, and I never did it because I was always tied up with, with wrestling. So um, I said, sure, why the heck not? Went out and tried out and uh, – you know, the rest is history, so to speak. So you were a three-year starter at BYU. Uh, what do you, what do you think it takes for a crossover athlete to become proficient at rugby? Or, I mean, you became uh, a national team player as a scrum half. To how, what did you have to do over that three-year period to get that good? Well. I don't know if I would ever say that I really got that good. I'll just say that I was kind of uh, in a pretty, pretty unique circumstance. Um, you know, I, I went in my freshman year, uh, tried out for the team, made it on the varsity team, mainly because I was in such just good shape. I didn't know what the heck I was doing <laughs> at all. Um, I just could run from sideline to sideline. They had me playing flanker then, you know, to kind of continue that, that fortunate circumstance. I just, I got called on an LDS mission to Australia and uh, while I was in Australia, we played, uh, you know, every uh, day off we had, we played touch rugby with uh, the community and with some of the other missionaries and stuff like that. So um, having been immersed in a culture that has rugby as a part of its background and, you know, it's, uh, it's national dynamic, it just kind of really, you know, wove the, uh, the fabric of what rug- rugby is into my, into my uh, uh, personality. And I came back and was fortunate enough to be able to play some more at BYU, make the national team and, and go from there. So, so what is your Eagle number? I don't know. You know, to be honest with you, that's more of a recent phenomenon. People keep counting that. And I, I think people start, I've had a couple of people say that they're, they're counting the numbers all wrong. And so, you know, I have no idea. Um, so, so part of this, I would say part of it is uh, the fact that uh, the union uh, doesn't really publish that well. So some of the guys, so I, I run off the ESPN database mm-hmm. and some of the guys have their numbers switched with the guy after them, but mm-hmm. it's, it's the most composite uh, database for USA rugby players when that make the national team. Cause as soon as the game happens, it just goes in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think it's, let me look. I think it's three. You're three oh nine. 
I had it. I, I don't even know what the recent ones are, if I'm being candid with you. So, um, so the most recent one, I think, was like 520, uh, 524. Well, basically, um, all, all that tells you is that I'm getting old, bro. <laughs> There you go. Write that one down. Yeah. All right. Duly noted. <laughs> but um, so your first cap was against Argentina. Uh, yep. What was that experience like? Um, well, that was that was back when they had the the Pan American Rugby Championships, and we were playing up in Canada. Um, I came off the bench, and we were playing against uh, uh, of all people, Gus Pichot uh from argentina so for me that was that was an honor even though you know at the time i knew who he was and didn't realize he'd become you know second in command in world rugby but um you know it was a it was a big privilege to be able to get your first cap against argentina but you know i i I look back on that game like i didn't even know back then that you swapped jerseys and that you did all that sort of stuff to you know commemorate this and that and that your first jersey was kind of a big deal I just wanted to swap jerseys with Gus. And so I hurry and try to grab Gus and get his jersey. And I, tr- I swapped my first jersey. Um, and, you know, Tom Billups was was one of the coaches at the time. Um, I think he was just the S&C guy at the time. And he saw that I swapped jerseys. And he just kind of – he pulled me to the side and took me under his wing and said, listen, you need to go get your jersey back. Here's another jersey. He gave me another U.S. jersey, gave it to – so I had to go back and cower and get my jersey back, and then it was just this whole series of unfortunate and embarrassing events. But uh, that was the, that, that's the thing I remember. The but most you still American. ended up with Pichot's jersey. I did end up with Pichot's jersey. Yes, so we're we're in good shape there. <laughs> awesome. So the the structures were a little bit different uh, back then. The NA four tournament was a significant portion of development for the national team. What did you think of uh, all of that? Well, to, to be honest with you, so the NA4 was towards the end of my playing time when they had the Falcons and the Hawks and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, in, in in concept, it made sense at the time. You know, I, I know Nigel was trying to trying to get another version of professional rugby up and running. And he was kind of using that as a bit of a precursor and some other things, but it just never, I don't think it ever really had the commercial foundation to make it, um, to make it work long-term. Um, in theory, from a high performance side, it made sense because you're having more guys playing top level rugby, you know, so on and so forth. But the commercial underpinnings of it just weren't ever really built very solidly. So I just think that it had a hard time and it was just a, it was a, just a drain financially from world rugby and USA rugby and rugby Canada's perspective. And that's why it's not around anymore. So moving on to coaching, when did you decide to become an assistant at BYU and how long did that last? So my brother played at BYU after me and he was playing, um, let's see, he was Oh four Oh five. I think his last year was 06. And so <clears throat> when I was um, still trying to stay in the mix with the national team, I would go down and train with the BYU guys. And um, and it just kind of all dovetailed together during those years with my little brother playing down there and then trying to keep myself in shape and in form um, that I just started helping coach. Um, 07 is when I officially just – once I was done playing – 
uh, officially uh, in 07, uh, then I just uh, I just said, you know, I, I enjoy being around the game still. So I uh, kind of raised my hand and asked Dave Smith if I could uh, help with the backs and help with some of the other stuff, you know, uh, on on the business side as well. And and um, yeah, so I started then officially. But I w- I'd been kind of kicking around a little bit, helping with the backs and the, and the halfbacks and stuff like that at BYU from, you know, 04, 05, 06 a little bit. So that led to you attending the – World Rugby High Performance Academy at Stellenbosch mm-hmm. for coaching. So, I mean, I've only heard about things that go on there, but it's I it, it's sort I wouldn't call it a secret because I'm sure if I went there, I could just go to classes yeah. if I paid for it myself. But yeah. what is what is that experience like, and how is that organized? Well, so that program it's a really good program. Um, you know, it's designed by World Rugby to be sort of an incubator um, for coaches specifically within what they're designating, you know, the tier two countries. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to go down there in uh, 2011. Um, I'd been down there twice before with um, the All-American, the U.S. All-American team as a player and then the All-American team in 2009 as a coach. Uh, so going back to Stellenbosch was, was fun. Um, but it's pretty intense little deal. I mean, if you can imagine being an American coach and going down and trying to, uh, take over, uh, training sessions of, you know, these semi-professional rugby athletes in some of these teams that they were having us work with, it was, it was decently humbling and intimidating, but, uh, you know, made some good friendships and, you know, some good relationships with the folks down there. The current president of um, SA Rugby is, was one of the the, the, the gentlemen that was uh, kind of the, the, the founder and, you know, main uh, person to foster this program with Stellenbosch and, and some of the things that he was doing. So, you know, Yuri Rowe and some of those guys were are people that we still keep in communication with. So, if anything, it was just a really good opportunity to continue to build relationships with people in rugby playing countries and that have other different views and perspectives. So, so going outside of rugby, you've been CEO of two companies, Venator Ventures and Bid Hire. Uh, you know, what does helping a lead two startups, uh, you know, tie into leading a startup rugby franchise? Uh, well, you know, I wouldn't qualify myself as the CEO of Venator Ventures. I'm more of a partner. Um, bit higher was one of my things that uh, has been put on the back burner. So, if anything, both of those both of those ventures have taught me that uh, not everything's going to be a wild success. Um, but you still got to work through the mechanics of it all, and you got to make sure that your foundation's right from the, the business side of things to make sure that you can have the long term return. So, you know, it's just it's just that entrepreneurship. Um, game that you're trying to build and, and work through and, and understand and understand that there's going to be sleepless nights. There's going to be stress. There's going to be chaos and, you know, uh, being able to put together uh, a rugby team, you know, this has obviously been the biggest and heaviest lift from a, a business standpoint of anything I've ever been involved with. Um, so in, in a way, those other ventures and some of the other stuff that I've done in my, over my career have, uh, you know, tempered me, uh, to help us be able to do this, but, um, you know, we still got, a long way to go. So if anything, those, those other business, um, other businesses that I've been involved with, 
they've uh, helped me learn that it's going to be a lot, a whole lot of sweat, toil, uh, but a whole heck of a lot of patience as well. So going going back three years ago in 2015, you helped reorganize Rugby Utah, mm-hmm. uh, the state SRO. Like, mm-hmm. how how did that come about, and what did you guys have to do? Because we're we're seeing uh, rugby evolve, you know, more at the grassroots level now. But this is sort of interesting because it leads into um, the Utah Select 15 and the Utah Select Sevens. Mm-hmm. Well. You know, I, I'd been uh, in the mix of conversations with a number of different folks here locally trying to help. Well, this really actually started about five or six years ago when we first were approached by one of the municipalities here in Utah uh, to look at um, partnering to build uh, a concept similar to what Glendale had done, um, using rugby as an economic development tool and a chance to kind of rebrand a community Um this community, uh, you know, of course, was one that was uh, heavily populated by uh, the Polynesian community here in Utah, um, and they felt that it was a good opportunity to kind of be able to use rugby as a sport to drive events and other things. Um, so we began that conversation at that time, looking to help them. We even went out and met with the folks at Glendale, with Linda and, and, and them. Um but we, we began to kind of formulate the strategy that, you know, if Utah ever really was going to be involved in conversations to help the game grow uh, nationally and even internationally, it needed to have um, a concept that um, made sense for this community. And, and I'm not going to get off on a tangent here, but that's one thing you'll notice about Major League Rugby is that each team, uh, although we're partners, uh, each team has its own uh, – identity on how they're pulling their strategy together to make it work within their communities. Because at the end of the day, if we're not growing the grassroots, then really we're not going to be successful in the long run. So um, kind of coming back to, um, you know, how this all got pulled together is, you know, we, we began to realize that they just, the, the, the rugby community here in Utah just needed a pinnacle to, to look at and to, sh- to shoot for. Um, for decades, the um, the top flight division of the men's division and, and others just was nowhere to be found. When I was a player um, with the U.S. national team, you know, I was having to fly to go play with Olympic Club and uh, the Dallas Harlequins at the time in Super League in order to try to keep myself in the mix with the U.S. team because there just wasn't anything here in Utah that was, um, you know, organized very well. Um, no offense to all of our, you know, rugby club brethren here, but, um, it it just was, wasn't where it needed to be. So, uh, that's where we began to kind of lay the foundation for this professional team, but we wanted to do so by at least helping align the, uh, the amateur layer, because we knew that even if there was supposed to be a professional team on top of that, it needed to have a strong and competitive amateur layer to be able to be uh, a success. We wanted to make sure that we had uh, a Southern Hemisphere modeled uh, program where players could go from high school to college or even, you know, from high school to club and continue that that path of progression from, you know, youth to professional. And the big gap between the two levels, obviously, here in Utah was the men's club division. And so that's where the Rugby Utah concept came into play. And it still is, uh, although, you know, we've been so tied up with a lot of the stuff that we're doing with 
the Warriors that the the men's division stuff here has kind of had to take a bit of a backseat this spring. But uh, we plan on reinvigorating that and continuing to help operate the Rugby Utah uh, brand and the men's division so that um, players that are looking to make that leap from amateur to professional um, have a, a good platform to do so. So we, we've talked about rugby Utah, and now in addition, you have the Utah Warriors. How did you get involved in MLR? What was the process? Because last year we had the MRC, and that ended up basically as a proof of concept for year one. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, this goes back, good heavens, you know, five, six years in, in a way when we first started talking to Glendale we first started talking to some of these other partners that could potentially muster the, uh, the framework to be able to make this work. So we were kind of working. I, th- I think everyone that's um, within major league rugby was sort of working in their own little silos. Um, and, and especially, um, you know, during the time that people began to hear the whisperings of Doug Schoeninger and pro rugby and some of those other folks. So um uh, but, you know, I think what ended up happening, uh, if I were to go back and, you know, look through my journals and everything else, wh- wh- what ended up happening is everyone began to to realize that the Doug Schoeninger thing was going to happen in, you know, 2015-ish, late 2015 um, and 16. Um, and everyone also similarly realized that it just, it wasn't the right concept. It, it wasn't going to be... It, it wasn't the right operator. Um, the model just, you know, didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, everything that was about it was very secretive and, you know, it was, it was just a really weird situation. So if anything, that whole episode, um, kind of congealed the, the core group of this major league rugby, uh, group to come together and say, you know, listen, this is going to fail. Um, and we've got to be in a position to make sure that, um, the, the, the fallout isn't as dire as what it could be if this does fail and more likely when it, when it does fail. Um, so that's when myself, Linda, um, Mark Bullock, um, and the folks at Glendale began to have some communication about what we were going to be doing, what their plans were. Um, and then we began to have other conversations with, uh, the folks in Austin, the folks in Houston and, um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. So, um, you know, we brought in other folks, uh, to the conversation, uh, Tim in new Orleans. Um, you know, the Seattle folks came online as well, uh, at the time. So, you know, this is the, the, the major league rugby concept has been, you know, in the works for almost, um, you know, two years, uh, where we've just kind of been working internally with amongst ourselves to, to make sure that uh, we had a concept that, that, uh, could stand the test of time and be able to scale and, and whether the, uh, the early onslaught of the first few years of, you know, financial stress. Awesome. So moving into, uh, you know, specifically the warriors and, you know, how, um, I guess you talked about the state organization will feed, uh, mm-hmm into the Warriors will the Utah selects program come back well we'll see that's a good question um, I, I think in some in some form it will um, the, the the question that you know I would 
I, I would kind of respond to with is, you know, wh- where does the U.S. rugby, you know, club system and other things kind of, you know, begin to evolve in the next year or two? And based on some of those answers, I think we'd be able to provide a more uh, definitive response. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if guys are playing better, higher level rugby, then yes, we want to be supportive of it. Just a matter of making sure the economics of it work, but then also, you know, bandwidth, you know, manpower and resources also match up. When did you meet Alf Daniels? I met Alf back in 2011 when he was uh, here with uh, Highland Rugby with his son that was playing there. Uh, He was helping coach a little bit with uh, Highland Rugby. Um, He came down and did some stuff with um, BYU, did some clinics, and was just very impressed with him. Um, I I wouldn't say that we we, we struck a bond or a relationship then, but um, as we were going through our initial search for a head coach, um, to be very honest with you, and I've you know, he and I have talked about this. He wasn't, you know, at the top of my list. Uh, in fact, um, he was a bit of an afterthought just because I'd been talking to some of these other folks from the UK and from France and, uh, even South America that were, um, you know, on paper, probably a little bit more experienced, but, um, you know, someone said, Hey, you know, you need to talk to Alf. And, uh, I said, yeah, no, you good guy, good coach. He knows the Utah community. Well, you know, so I said, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And uh, literally within the, the first five or six minutes of the conversation, I just knew this was our guy. Um, we, we needed someone that was dynamic, level-headed, uh, but could understand the community here well because it is a unique rugby community. It's different in uh, the various different cultures that are coming into it with the history of, of the high schools and collegiate programs that are here. So you kind of have to understand some of those things. And he got it all. Uh, but at the same time, he was uh, experienced, um, enough to be able to command the respect of all these guys on this team and within this community. And that's really what we needed. And he was willing to understand that, you know, there's going to be some days where he's going to be having to pump up balls, so to speak. Right. You know, where, when, uh, professionalism is in its embryonic phase, like we are, you're not going to have all the resources that you're going to be used to back in uh, New Zealand. So, he uh, he's he's been a great fit, great match. I can't speak highly enough of him. He's a great coach. Yeah, uh, when he was announced, I I mean I, I as I do normally, I, I dig in, and he'd been in the states coaching at a high level once before. I mean, a couple mm-hmm. years ago when Penn State ran into some issues and let go of their head coach was when they had some player issues. You know, he helped right the ship for a semester, and I guess he, they weren't able to retain him. But I mean, they won. I think they went four and one or something like that under him. So it it sort of says he came here once. Uh, why not come back? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, then yeah, he, yeah, he's a great coach. So what is the the Utah training program like? Uh, you know how how can you describe the culture in the locker room? What are the aspects of the team you think that will make the Warriors competitive this season? Well, listen, it's, it's pretty simple with, with, uh, with the, 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 the type of players that we have, um, it's when you're set piece, make sure you have a good defensive structure and make sure they have a smile on their face. And if you do those three things then your team's going to be fine. Um, and it's really not too much more than that. Um, as you saw in our first couple games, 
we didn't do the first two things. Um, and because of those two, first two things, the third thing can happen. Um, but you saw in that third game, we improved those first two areas and um, the guys had smiles on their faces as they were playing it at the end of the game. Um, so, you know, you can talk about X's and O's, you can talk about this and that, but when you're dealing with a team that's as um, diverse uh, culturally as ours, where you have, you know, I think some people begin to think, well, because you've got a lot of Polynesians, you know, all Polynesians sort of think the same. Well, they don't, you know, it's, we, oh, I, we I know, we got, we got I know, games. I know that <laughs> one, uh, you know, in, in the army, it's like, uh, you know, I played on the bliss team and we had Fijians, Tongans and, you know, Samoans and then guys were from Samoa or American Samoans that are different. It's exactly. Kind of funny. Yeah, American-born Tongans. You've got, you know, off the island Tongans. You've got Samoans. You got Fijians. You got Zimbabweans. We've got Americans. We've got, you know, Kiwis. You know, you got all these different cultures. And um, one of the things that I uh, I feel really strongly about is, uh, and this goes back to my days at BYU, is, you know, if you've got a good uh, culture um, that everybody can buy into. So you're not having little subsets of cultures and you're not having this group kind of single themselves out here or think that they have a different set of expectations versus another group within the team. If you've got a unified culture, um, then your team's going to be fine on the field. You may not win everything you need. Um, that comes down to the, the other side of uh, you know the execution strategy, tactics, all that stuff that deals more with the rugby things. But you're going to be in just about every single game with a, with a chance. Um, so that's one thing Alf and I talked about early on is making sure that our culture was right. Um, and I think that's beginning to evolve. You know, uh, these, these teams that are new within Major League Rugby, that, I think that's the big issue is, is seeing them build their identities and seeing them build their cultures. And that's one of the things that I think Glendale obviously has um, – an advantage on with all of these other teams is that they have been around for so long. They know each other. They've been able to have their culture set for lo a long time. And that's what you're seeing with the success that they've had. Uh, so all of us are playing catch up to them in that regard. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how these other teams begin to build that similar culture, though the winning ways, so to speak, um, that, that lead to success. When does David Tamalau join up with you guys? He's here. Um, yeah, he got yeah, in town. He's... Yeah, he got in town on Friday. And, uh, yeah, so we've got essentially our full complement of guys. We've got one more player that's going to get here this weekend. Uh, Is it C.L.C. Mahoney? Oh, less, not C.L.C. No. Mahoney. No. Um, we've been in communication with him, but uh, he fell off the radar sometime in, in, uh, in February and – you know, you can only chase so many people for so long, right? So, got it. Um, Less solo eye. Less solo eye. Former uh, University of Utah player, uh, played rugby league for the U.S. team for a number of years, and um, yeah, he'll be joining the team. Um, not not in San Diego, but he'll be getting here this weekend and situating his family and everything else. So. Yeah, with uh, Vita and Les and some of these other folks, we'll have a couple extra big bodies to add to the four pack. Give us a little bit of mongrel up front, and um, you know, give us a good platform to be able to build off. Overall, what did you think about the opening weekend? 
it was it was amazing. I mean, it was stressful more than anything I've ever been involved in. Uh, but it was uh, it was an amazing weekend. And the guys, despite the result with Glendale, um, you know, they showed well. Um, they showed the potential of of what this team could be um, in those those moments here and there where you saw uh, old man River, you know, Ben Nichols scoring that first try for the team. Um, you know, the the Josh. Anderson. I didn't I didn't know he was like thirty four. I, I, I looked at him and I'm like, what are we talking about? He's like 54. <laughs> I, I was like, Nichols, I'm like, too bad he's capped for Zimbabwe, man. Because, like, he can, like, he's still got wheels. He's only captain seven. So I think there's some sort of rule that you can cross over on 15. Yeah. Call maybe. Friday up. Yeah. You got to just be like one tournament. That's, That's right. Because um, he's been here a while. He's a good guy. And, you know, to be honest with you, he's, he, he's uh, he's a good combination of a player slash coach, and this is kind of what that team needs at, at the stage that we're at is someone on the field that can be a uh, a general uh, more so than than anything else, and that's what he, the, the bill he fits. So we've looked at your guys' games. Uh, you know, great production by the way. The last three games, uh, can't wait to uh, see you guys on ESPN this weekend. But uh, San Diego. Sunday, what, yeah. are you, what are your thoughts on, you know, you've seen them play against Seattle. What do we got? For the record, I picked you guys by 10. Uh-oh. Well, I think that's being very generous. Um, yeah, to be honest with you, the, the stage that we're at, I mean, the first two games, we saw a lot of our deficiencies and weaknesses. Um, that's why we wanted to play those preseason games is to be able to work through a lot of those. Um, so the results for me aren't the big issue. Um, but you also saw uh, some of the abilities that this team, our team are going to have uh, in that third game. Um, so, you know, listen, again, it kind of comes back to uh, what I said earlier. If, if, if we can, if we can win our set piece, we can have a, a solid defensive structure um, and, and, and ensure that our guys are having a good time and they're not uh, uh, getting, uh, un- unwound psychologically on the field, having smiles on their faces, as I say, then I think we'll be fine. Um, I- I'm more concerned with what we're going to be doing than what you know San Diego is going to be doing um, at-, at this stage, just because I think that's more important of where we're at in our development. But you know, you saw some, um, you know, some really dynamic things with uh, San Diego. Um, you know, they're a very patient team. They're very um, you know, discipline team when it came to, you know, their attacking structures, their pattern is, is, you know, it, it's, it's not too complex, but it is pretty, you know, patient in nature where they're going to be able to try to take you, they, they can take you through 15, 20 phases, you know, or more to try to break you down, uh, defensively, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see who they've got, uh, on the field, you know, um, not only from, uh, a back line, uh, because I think they've got as dynamic of a back line as there is in Major League Rugby when everybody's healthy, um, just given all those uh, U.S. national team players that they have. Um, but, you know, more importantly, what they're going to be putting on the field up front. So it'll be interesting to see how they how they uh, come out on, on Sunday and uh, see how our guys respond. So going away from the, I guess, the uh, the job, Mm-hmm. Um, when I interviewed Dave Williams, I asked him about triathlon and he said he wasn't into it. 
he didn't succumb to what all scrum halves do. And he said, when you get Kimball Care on here, ask him about his uh, journey with triathlon. Because, uh, you know, that's that's a former roommate thing right there. You know, so I, I have to I have to give Dave Williams a little bit of props, you know, in the fact that I look more like a prop than he does uh, these days. So that's my my journey f- from where I've been at to where I'm at today is less of a triathlon uh, of the regular, you know, swim, bike, run, more of uh, the, the, the couch, eat and uh, sit behind a desk sort of triathlon. So um and, and the, the body, you know, reflects that. So, you know, where Dave has kept himself in shape and he actually still looks like a scrum half. You know, I, I tell people that I used to play with the U.S. team and they ask me, well, what position did you play? And I play, and I said, well, I played scrum half. And they all sort of give me that look of, you know. So, anyways, thanks, Dave Williams, for uh, giving that shout out. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, um, Kimball, uh I think we're about at that time. So thank you uh, for the interview and talk to you soon. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much. Good luck with all your stuff. And uh, thanks for covering the league. And, and uh, you know, we're excited. We're excited that people are starting to catch the vision of what we're trying, what we saw two or three years ago. So thank you for kind of carrying the torch and, and uh, helping us get the, the, the word out. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.